ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. All right. Hello, friends. Welcome to the October keg. Be ready for some terrible British accents from me. I'm just warning you now. (laughs) And I'm not even going to try because I'm terrible at accents, so I will leave that to Alana. (laughs) I am just in a goofy mood. It it could happen. Who knows? Um, Well, how are you doing? What are you drinking? How are things? Well, it's lovely to see your face. if it's on zoom um and i am doing good a little bit tired but i'm doing good and um yeah tonight i am drinking a lovely brits of moscow um and which i guess is kind of fitting for tonight's subject i don't know (laughs) um at least europe you know (laughs) um so yeah i'm drinking a brits of moscow and um yeah happy to see you how are you I'm good. I'm good. I am drinking a wonderful What the Haze from Device uh, Brewing in Sacramento. They're one of my favorites. That's also where Brits and Moscow is from. So um, classic staple in our house. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, I guess we could get into What the Ale moments since we're asking how we're doing. Okay. Do you have Uh, any What the Ale moments? um, I think mine is a really positive one this week I like very randomly the other day a friend from grad school reached out and was like hey I'm gonna be in Oakland Wednesday want to get a beer and I was like yeah and so I got to do that and then this weekend I'm seeing like my besties from college for the first time like all of us together since before the pandemic and so I'm just so excited to like just be really full of like friends and loving community and all of that So I think my what the ill moment is very positive and full of love, but yeah. And my baby girl is going to be in the same city you guys are meeting in. So, you know, I know she's looking forward to getting some hugs and kisses from your besties. So that's a nice little thing that she's looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've already coordinated. We have a plan. We're going to kidnap her on Saturday. Don't <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> She'll love that. But uh, what about you? What are, what are your what the ill moments today? Uh, you know, I think my what the L moment is um, on Sunday, I get to chaperone um, our local Q prom. So it's our prom for anybody that identifies as queer in any way. Um, and, you know, my what the L is, I am so grateful that my children and our community has this. And, you know, but my what the L is like, how different would my generation be if we had something like this, you know, where you could just come and be your queer, happy self and no judgments and no, you know, pressure to be anything else. Um, And, you know, there's always a really fun drag show. And so I'm really looking forward to it, but it does make me a little like, man, like I wish my generation would have had something like that. You know, our, these younger generations are just killing it with the opportunities they have to be their authentic self. So I'm grateful for it but it makes me sad for my generation. Oh, totally. And I just like, I feel like there are so many communities that don't have Q proms nowadays, even. And like, if y'all are needing community, I mean, California is a trek, but like, seriously, we got so many lovely, amazing resources and love and organizations and things like this for LGBTQ plus youth and adults. It's not just for the youth, but, uh, you know, we, 
yeah, like I just feel so like my heart is so full when I get to see like someone just like living fully authentically and being that. Well, and it's such a wonderful event because, you know, you can come in like homecoming wear, like semi-formal kind of homecoming wear. You can come in costume because it's October or you could come in like jean shorts and a tank top. Like you are allowed to come just as you are, just as you want to be. And there's no judgments. There's no dress code that's going to hold you at the door. Um, so I just love that, you know, to see these teams be able to show up however they want and be embraced and accepted. And um, again, the drag show is great. I really appreciate those queens donating their time. And um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to being a part of that this weekend. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that, you know, my my kids have that kind of support, at least here in California, not everywhere, you know, but I'm grateful that we live in a community where that's a thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it, it's a beautiful thing. I, I always say that I was very lucky with where and with whom I grew up and yeah it's 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 real it's it's real um well we're gonna totally pivot yes we are <laughs> and from all that joy to I, don't all the <laughs> I don't think there's really a good segue so I was like let's just pivot um <laughs> but my wonderful friends my wonderful listeners we are going to Whitechapel in 1888. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, that's AKA when Jack the Ripper was active. And so we are going to dive into the case and the theories and talk suspects. And I am so super excited because we kind of researched separately. And so we're going to put this together. Yeah, neither one of us know exactly how the other person's going to present, um, but I think we both know these cases pretty well. Um, I will say that I am presenting on um, the Canonical Five, and so I am the one who's actually talking about the murders um, and the women who were murdered, and um, so I do want to give trigger warning. Obviously, these were very gruesome murders, and I will be describing how they were killed because, you know, it's significant and, like, that's how we know this was Jack the Ripper. Um, so I will be giving those details and I will give a warning right before I say those details. So if you would like to skip ahead, totally, you can do that. Um, but my main thing, Alana, in this presentation is I really feel like anytime I hear about Jack the Ripper, all I hear is that he killed prostitutes yeah. and that's just how it's described. And, um, you know, these were women, they are women that had families, um, some of them did sex work because they had no other choice. Um, yeah. And so I do want to give a little bit of background about each woman, because I just feel like they're just a name and a body and in most stories that you hear. And so even though there's not a lot of information about them, I just want to honor them a little bit by telling their stories, the bits that we have. Yeah, well, and so sadly, like these women died with like, not a lot of dignity. I mean, yeah the photos of the crime scene are some of the earliest crime scene photos ever. And so I'm sure everyone has seen the crime scene photos. And I will say like, I didn't realize how gruesome and horrible and like awful that was like, even, even the murders, like they describe it and you're like, wow, that sounds bad. But in the photos, they don't look bad, but um, someone was able to colorize them. And when they colorize them and you see I mean, it just breaks you. Like, you're like, that was a human being. 
And so when a lot of the photos that I've seen are like after they've been like sewn back up for the um for the burial, you know. So a yeah. lot of times, you know, you're not even seeing um the way that these women were torn apart. Um, you know, and and that's the other thing that I want to say is like these murders were so like widely covered um by media and newspapers that you know the public was kind of like morbidly obsessed. Yeah. And um, you know, and I know like I can't judge that. I mean, obviously we have a podcast that, you know, talks about murder. So we obviously have some morbid obsession stuff too. Um, but I, I just want to make sure these women are more than just a name and a body. Um, so I am going to give a little bit of information. Like I said, some of them, there's not that much. And some of them, it is kind of a sad history or, um, you know, you know, maybe they were caught up in some things that, you know, were not great things or whatever. Um, but I, I do just want to give them a little bit of history each uh, out of respect. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we should give them a history because it's the same thing with like any other major serial killer. I feel like you don't know anything about the victims, you know, the guy's yeah. name who did it and you know, their name as a footnote. And I think it should be reversed personally. Like we should celebrate yeah. the life death and um yeah or at least when a lot of these women unfortunately their lives were kind of sad and so you know it's a sad ending to what was kind of a sad life and um but that doesn't mean they deserved what they got so no yeah absolutely well I guess you're the one so I'm going to be covering the women and the actual murders and then Alana (laughs) gets to cover the suspects and theories (laughs) which is kind of fun so Yes. Um, yeah, I'm excited to get to your part because um, my part is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, so should we get into it? Oh, I absolutely think we should get into it. Let's go. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, I know I said that there is already like a lot of public um, obsession with the murders, um, but I also want to stress that because these cases went unsolved, um, the public put so much pressure um, on the police commissioner and the home secretary that they both eventually resigned because oh, wow. people were so that they never found the killer. Um, so I just wanted to put that out before I start in with the canonical five. But that's amazing that the public was really pushing for yeah solved because I feel like sometimes people are like it's a mystery, just let it be. Yeah. Like no, yeah. that was horrible. Jack needs to be caught, y'all. So, yeah. Um, so, um, on August 31st of 1888, the body of Mary Ann Nichols was discovered. Um, but before I get into her murder, I do want to give a little background about her life. So, um, she was born Mary Ann Walker on the 26th of August, 1845. Friends called her Polly. Um, At some time during her teenage years, she ended up getting involved with a guy named Thomas Stewart Drew, um, and they separated. She ended up meeting a man named William Nichols, and they married in 63, and she had five children with him. Um, They did have a lot of marital issues. You know, it was reported that William was having an affair, um, and it was also reported that she had a little bit of a drinking problem. Um, the woman that he reportedly had the affair with was a woman that was helping Mary after she gave birth to their youngest son. So I feel like that's even an extra feeling of betrayal that it was somebody who was there to help him. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So they broke up and got back together several times. Um, but eventually she left him and she, um, went to 
um, well, all the children like stayed living with the father, except for her eldest who went to live with um, her father. So the grandfather of the child. Okay. Um, so Marianne became a resident of a workhouse and her ex had a pay or a stipend of five shillings a week, which is about a dollar 35 us. Okay. Um, but at some point she moved in with another man and she started getting involved in sex work. And so when William found out about that, um, he went and argued to the parish authorities that he shouldn't have to pay the stipend anymore because she's leading an immoral life by living with a man she's not married to and doing sex work. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. so, you know, and again, she's doing sex work because her stipend is $1.35 a week and that's not enough to live on. Um, so she, you know, tried to argue it, but she did end up losing the stipend. Um, at some point she did end the relationship with that man and, um, ended up back at the workhouse. Um, she lived with her father for a little bit at some point and he, and, um, he and she would argue because she was drinking a lot. And so she decided to move out, um, because, you know, they just were not getting along. And he said that, um, you know, even though she wasn't a sober a woman and that, that caused some disagreements between them that he didn't think that she was promiscuous and that, um, you know, when she stayed with him, she never stayed out particularly late or whatever, but he did say that she, he was concerned about the company that she kept with some of her female friends. Um, and so, you know, the implication was that those were other people that were involved with sex work, right. um, but he did not believe she was involved in sex work. I mean, it's later proven that she was, but, um, Anyways, at this point, she ended up rekindling the relationship with Thomas Stewart Drew, who was, um, you know, her high school sweetheart, but he was now a widower and they were together about four years um, and he was working as a blacksmith at the time. So she was doing better. And then the relationship ended in 1887. Okay. Um, So at this point, she became homeless and she was sleeping in um, Chafalgar's okay um and there were a lot of people that would you know people that were houseless and they would stay in the square um on monday the 23rd of october um they did kind of like a sweep and they arrested anybody that um they called it wandering abroad without any visible means of sustenance so basically they arrested anybody that was poor and living on the street Wow. So she was swept up as a part of that. Um, And, you know, it was, there was some question about whether or not this was the same Mary Ann Nichols. um, But, you know, it was believed that it was. And um, the newspaper that were covering the story of the sweep, you know, um, they described her as the worst woman in the square, saying that she was very disorderly. Okay. Yeah. So there is some judgment. I mean, you know, it didn't say, but you know, if I was being arrested for just trying to sleep, <laughs> I would um probably be disorderly too. Yeah, I um, would probably at least throw a fit, if not more. Like, yeah. And then in May of 1888, um, the matron of the workhouse that she was in, Miss Fielder, helped her get a job being at, like a domestic servant for Samuel and Sarah Cowdy Cowdry. Um, and she worked for, you know, for them just for a short time. I mean, about two months. 
And then her father received a postcard from the wife saying that his daughter had stolen clothing. Um, And she, at that point, moved out and moved to the West End and back into a lodging house. Okay. Um, And so at this point, she was in a lodging house that was known as the White House. And this was where she spent her last um, and 43rd birthday. And, um, and then the next four days were the last of her life. And there's not a lot of information about how she spent the last four days. Um, but again, just a sad story of a woman, you know, left her husband, he cheated on her, then, you know, trying to make ends meet. And then he takes her stipend away. Um, you know, so she, I don't know. I mean, I feel like she didn't have a lot of choice at that. I mean, women didn't have a lot of choice at that time. Divorced women didn't have a lot of choice. Um, Divorced in the 1800s. I mean, like, I feel like even in the U.S., like, it was a scandal to get divorced even in the 80s. Like, divorced in the 1800s? Like, wow. And then for him to be able to say she's living in a moral life because she's living with another man or, you know, if she was involved in sex work at that time. But to be able to take her stipend away when it wasn't that much anyways, but, um, so yeah, so now we're up to, um, back to August 31st, 1888, which is the day that she was murdered. Um, and so, you know, I am going to keep this brief, but I am going to describe what was happened to her. So trigger warning, you know, if you want to skip ahead, now's the time, you know, about maybe a minute or two ahead. Um, so her body was discovered by Charles Cross. And then a few moments later, Robert Paul, um, also approached and, uh, this was on Buck's row. Um, she was lying on her back and her throat was, they called it severely slashed. Okay. And severely slashed. They, um, it was really like, there were two, um, like large incisions, but it like nearly decapitated her. Oh my so God. when they say severely slashed, they mean like very severely slashed. I mean, that's um, slashed at that point. That's like a slash. I mean, yeah. yeah. That's. Um, and then her, um, her lower abdomen was partially ripped open and it was like a deep and jagged wound. Um, and there were several other incisions in the abdomen with like the same kind of knife. Okay. Um, and she was basically disemboweled. Ooh, wow. Yeah. So the doctor that arrived on the scene um, to examine the body deemed that her time of death was less than 30 minutes before the time she was found. So, okay. you know, she had only been laying there for about 30 minutes when these two men walked upon her, um, you know, and, you know, so that, I mean, it just means the killer was probably not too far. And, um yeah. And they just, they didn't see him, you know, they, they weren't able to catch him. So. And was there enough blood to support that? Like she had been killed there and not killed elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think in all of these cases, it seemed like they were definitely killed where they lay. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Um, yeah. So, um, and again, just like timeline wise, um, you know, she, um, she was killed on August 31st and then, you know, we go down and the next body was found on, um, September 8th. So, you know, like a week later, I mean, these are pretty close together. 
Um, so this is when the body of Annie Chapman was found. Okay. Um, so again, I'm going to give a little bit of her history before I get into her murder. Um, so she was born in uh, September of 1841, born Eliza Ann Smith, uh, but people called her Annie. And she was born in Paddington, London. In 1869, she married John Chapman at the All Saints Church in Knightsbridge, and they had three children together. And again, this is where we get into some of the sad parts of these women's stories. So her youngest child um, had some kind of physical disability, and it didn't say what the disability was, but it just said that it didn't allow the child to be able to leave the home. And then the eldest daughter ended up dying of meningitis and after the death of their daughter annie and her husband john um, both started drinking heavily Uh uh-huh um and eventually they ended up uh separating and he would pay her 10 shillings a week which is much more than the other guy um yeah (laughs) he would pay her 10 shillings a week but unfortunately a year or two after um the separation he ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver And so she lost that income, um, that stipend. So all of these women, it's so tragic. Yeah. So she was working, um, doing crochet work and selling artificial flowers. Um, But like many other women at the time, she had to supplement her income with sex work because she just didn't have a lot of options and she couldn't survive. Um, and so it's said that she had two other relationships. One was with John Civy and one was with either Edward or Ted Stanley, depending on which article you read. Um, okay. And some accounts say that these two men were just clients of hers, but there was some other accounts that say that she lived with John Civy for a period of time. Um, there's not much else known, but there were like, a few days before the, her murder, she got into a physical fight with another woman that was staying at the lodge. Um, and this story is that the woman, Eliza Cooper, had loaned her some soap. And apparently, you know, she gave the soap to Ted Stanley. And then when Eliza asked for it back, Annie was kind of rude about it. And they broke out into a fight. Um, but apparently, Eliza kind of was a scrapper. And um, Annie left with a black eye and a lot of bruising on her chest. Oh, wow. Yeah. So her friend Amelia um, saw her after the fight and noticed the bruises and that Annie looked ill. And apparently Annie hadn't eaten. So Amelia gave her some money to get food. Um, And then she saw her again um, three days later and said that she looked even worse and um, complained that she felt too ill to do anything. So, you know, she was really not in a good place. Um, And then you know, later Amelia walked past again, it was about 10 minutes later and she just stopped and was like trying to, um, you know, be supportive and like raise her spirits. Mm -hmm. And these are the last words that Amelia ever heard Annie say. Um, and it was, it's no use giving way. I must pull myself together and get some money or I shall have no lodgings. So this, um, you know, brings us up to the night of her murder. Um, and so apparently she went to the office of, um, of the deputy lodging housekeeper, Timothy Donovan, and she explained to him that she didn't have money to pay for her bed for the night. And he told her if she can't pay, you can't stay. 
And so she left, this was at one 35 in the morning, by the way. Um, and so she left and she told him that she uh, was going to return shortly with the money. And so please don't give her bed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so then about uh, 5 30 AM, there was a Mrs. Elizabeth long walking along Hanbury street and she passed Annie and saw him talking to a man directly outside of 29 Hanbury street. And she heard the man say, will you? And Annie replied, yes. And then just a half an hour later at 6 a.m., John Davis, who is a resident um, nearby, found her mutilated body in the backyard of number 29 Hanbury Street, which is where, you know, Elizabeth Long had seen her a half hour before. Um, So again, this is where we get into the gory details of her murder. So if you would like to skip ahead, please do. Um, So again, she was discovered by John Davis um, and um, her throat had been cut kind of in the same manner that Marianne Nichols had been slashed and her abdomen was like completely ripped open. Mm. Um, there was, um, an autopsy done later that showed that the killer had removed her uterus and parts of her vagina. Um, but when she was found, you know, her abdomen was ripped open and her intestines were like torn out. Um, but still attached to her abdomen, but they had been placed over her shoulder. Um, you know, wow. so she, yeah, I mean, just, so, you know, again, you said it earlier, but the way these women were found, like there's no dignity. I mean, it's just, it's horrific what these people walked upon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is around the time um, that there was a Dr. George Baxter Phillips And he was a police surgeon. And this is when the idea that, you know, maybe this guy um, had some medical training, was a doctor, or at least had some basic anatomical knowledge, because to be able to, like, remove her womb, you know, you you would kind of have to know where things are. (laughs) Um, So, so that's when, you know, he came up with that theory. Um, and this is when the first uh, Jack, Jack the Ripper letter arrived, and it was on um, September 27, 1888, and it was sent to the Central News Agency. And they, they received the letter on September 27th, but they didn't publish it until October 1st, so a couple days later. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the letter. It's worded a little weird, so I will try to get through it without stumbling too much. Um sure. So the letter says, dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they looked so clever and talk about being on the right track. Mm. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on horrors and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work. The last job was I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly. Wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it straight out. My knife so nice and sharp. And I want to get back. Oh, I want to get to work right away. If I get a chance, 
Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Ha. So he like ends the letter and then restarts it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he just to say, hey, I hope you don't mind that I gave my own name. Yeah. Um, right, so again, they got the letter on, on September 27th. They didn't release it until October 1st. But of course, what happens in between September 27th and October 1st is that there were two more murders on the same night. Oh my gosh. Um, and so the first one is the body of Elizabeth Stride. And again, uh, this is September 30th, 1888. Um, so her history is, um, Born November 27, 1843 in Sweden. Uh, Liz was registered as a prostitute in 1865. Um, but in 60, uh, November 65, uh, she was able to get a job as a servant for Maria Wesner. And as a result, they removed her from the registry of known prostitutes. And then she moved to London in 66. Um now, in 69, she married a man named John Thomas Stride, and they opened a coffee shop. And um, there were some things where, like, she got sent to a popular workhouse uh, by the magistrate's court, but they didn't have a reason. So, you know, I think that's like if you've gotten arrested, um, this is, you know, they send you to a workhouse. So, but they didn't know the reason why. And then on September 3rd, 1878, there was a pleasure steamer called the Princess Alice steamer and it sunk in a collision off of Woolwich and um you know a lot of people died on this uh, in this crash and so Elizabeth Stride apparently claimed that her husband and two children were among the dead but later that was you know disproven and so um yeah I think she was trying to get some money for that crash and you know claiming that her family had died um in 79, she petitioned the Swedish church for financial assistance, citing that her husband was ill. And then the marriage broke down in 81 and they separated and he ended up dying of heart disease in 84. Okay. Um, and that, you know, that same year, she ended up getting seven days of hard labor for being drunk and disorderly mm -hmm. and um, soliciting. Um, and then, you know, she moved in with this guy, Michael Kidney, you know, there were some other um, things where she was asking for financial support or got convicted for, you know, public drunkenness and that kind of thing. Um, you know, but I mean, all of that, I don't know, it seems like she was in a hard place and I'm not justifying anything, but I don't want to get totally into that. Um, and then, you know, it seems like the night of her murder, you know, she was seen multiple times by multiple people throughout the night between 11 p.m. Um, and 12.45 a.m. Now, the 12.45 a.m. sighting, um, the thing that I want to say is this man named Israel Schwartz apparently saw her being assaulted and thrown to the ground um, in front of Duckfield's yard on Burner Street. And it doesn't say what he did. Did he just walk away? <laughs> you know, um, but apparently he saw the assault begin and did nothing. Um, and then 15 minutes later, uh, Lewis Dimschitz pulled up in a pony cart um, 
and he found her body. Okay. So, you know, this Israel guy, you know, I know that probably back then more than now, but even now, sometimes people are like, I'm just going to mind my own business. But in this case, it does seem like her murder could have been prevented because he saw the attack starting, um, which is really sad. So now I'm going to get into her murder. So, you know, again, if you don't want to hear it, that's okay. Skip ahead. Um, So, you know, again, severe was, uh, her throat was uh, cut again, very severely. It severed her left artery. Um, but there are no other uh, slashes or incisions on her neck um, or on her abdomen. So this was very different than the other murders because, you know, their abdomen had been mutilated. Um, so because of the ab- absence of any mutilations on the abdomen, you know, they obviously believe that he was interrupted or, you know, couldn't finish his work. Um, and there are, you know, definitely reasons to believe that based on some of the other things we'll see. Um and so um, that leads us to the next murder, though, because a few blocks away, another body was found a little bit later. And this is the body of Catherine Eddowes. And this was 45 minutes later after the, you know, the first body was found. Um, so Catherine Eddowes, born April 14th, 1842, uh, in Grizzly Green, Wolverhampton, Um at the time of her death, they said she was suffering from Bright's disease, which is a form of uh, uremia. People describe her as really intelligent and scholarly, um, scholarly, but that she possessed a little bit of a fierce temper. Um, she seemed to be pretty well educated. Um, her father uh, worked as an apprentice, and then he married a woman named Catherine Evans, who is a cook, cook um, and they go to London together. And George fathers 12 children there. And then his wife, Catherine, dies. Um, And then, you know, um, our Catherine, Catherine Eddowes, um, she ends up going to live with her aunt. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, she, um, and, you know, it doesn't say much about the relationship with the dad, but she went to live with the aunt. And at 21, she was still living with her aunt. um, And that's when she met a man named Thomas Conway. And they describe him as a pensioner, but he seemed like he wasn't old enough to be a pensioner. Um, and apparently they um, made a living by selling cheap books. And then she also apparently um, was in the production of Gallo ballads. Mm-hmm. And so on one occasion, you know, apparently she hawked one of these ballads um, at the execution of her cousin, Christopher Robinson. And he was hanged in um, at Stratford in January of 1866. It doesn't say what he was hanged for, but apparently she sang one of these ballads at his um, execution. Wow. So that was how they made their money, apparently. Um, and then they returned to Wolverhampton and she gave birth to their first child. It doesn't look like they there's evidence that they were ever married, but they did end up having three children together. Um. And then in 1881, they split up and Kate took Annie and um, the boy, one of the boys, um, and she moved into Cooney's lodging house. And this is where she met John Kelly. um, And he had been like regularly employed as a fruit salesman. um, But during this period, uh, her daughter, Annie, 
ends up marrying Lewis Phillips. And there was something she said about like trying to avoid her mother's scrounging. So I don't know what that's about. Um, and then it was later said that, you know, um, she wasn't often drinking, but she was a very jolly woman, often singing. Um, and most people say she was back to the lodging house between nine and 10 most nights. Um, but that she did sometimes have the habit of walking the streets and, um, and he, and people had seen her be intimate with men other than Kelly, but he, Kelly himself said he had no knowledge of her, you know, doing any kind of sexual work or anything, but that she, she did sometimes drink to excess. Okay. Okay. So back to her murder. So she, um, like was severely mutilated. Um, her face, her uterus and left kidney were removed. Um, she was discovered in Mitre, Mitre Square. Um, and this was within the city of London. Um, again, throat had been severed, abdomen, abdomen had been torn apart, um, deep jagged wound. Um, and um, eyewitnesses say that they saw her in the company of a man who they described as approximately five foot seven, um, maybe about 30 years of age, medium build, fair complexion and a mustache. And people described his overall appearance that he appeared to be a sailor. Okay. Um, so, you know, again, her body was found 45 minutes after the previous body. And, um, and then apparently he may have walked back towards the first murder um, because a piece of Catherine Eddowes apron was dropped. Um, and this was found by Alfred Long in a doorway. Mm -hmm. And near the apron was a message written in chalk. Um, and I'll say what it says. It was an anti-Semitic thought, um, but it said the Jews and it spelled the Jews, J-U-W-E-S, are the men that will not be, will not be blamed for anything. Or no, I'm sorry, not be blamed for nothing. So written very weirdly. Okay. Um, yeah, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Um, so it says that, you know, there was, you know, kind of common to have some anti-Semitic thoughts in that area. But, you know, if this was the killer that wrote that, you know, then that definitely means he had walked back towards the um, previous murder and maybe even walked past the cops that were there. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty ballsy if he did that, which apparently, I mean, if he dropped the apron, he must have. So, yeah, I, that's my question is how did the apron get there? Because you can't. Yeah. I mean, it had to be him. Yeah. Okay. And then um, this is when another letter um, that was a postcard was received by the police department on 10-1. And this um, postcard said, I was not cotting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not the time to get the ears for police. Thanks for keeping last last letter back till I got to work again, Jack the Ripper. Okay, so that sounds legit. So, well, because you know he had asked them to hold the letter, and they did hear, hold it until the day after the next murder, and um, and the postcard mentions a double event, and they hadn't released that to the press yet, so this postcard had to be from the killer because nobody else knew. Yeah, that sounds legit to me. Yeah. Um, and then, um, 
this little bit of a story pisses me off a bit, but on 1016, George Lusk, who he was the leader of the Mile End Vigilant, um, Vigilance Committee. And this was a committee that was made up of like businessmen and like successful people, but that wanted to help assist the police. Right. Um, and so they got a note and it was signed from hell and it was delivered in a box containing a human kidney. So, you know, of course they assumed that the human kidney was from Catherine Eddowes. Um, but it was later turned out that it was a prank by a medical student. What? And all I can say is asshole. Like yeah. what kind of person thinks that you can prank about the murder of these women? Um, and, you know, apparently you're a medical student, so you have access to human body parts, which is just obnoxious that you would do that. Um, right. But I swear, Alana, part of me wishes that old Jackie boy punishes this asshole, <laughs> you know, for trying to steal his attention because, you know, Jack the Ripper was all about attention. Um, and there's part of me that wish this boy got what was coming to him because what the fuck makes him think that he can make light of these murders and do this prank. I just, it's so disrespectful and yeah, I hope that karma came and got him. Yeah, I, you know, um, it reminds me of like, even with like, I don't know, just like other murder cases where like, they just, they, they make it so frivolous and like, whatever. It's like, how dare you? Yeah. Like, just, you are not like someone's life ending is not at all something you should joke about and yeah I that's all I have to say about the from hell letter I I remember the from hell letter was fake because I think when I was younger I thought it was real I didn't know and then like someone told me they're like the from hell letter is fake and I was like what like yeah yeah, I just you know I don't know what kind of person thinks that's funny that's just horrible um, so anyways, this brings us to November 9th, 1888, and this is the final canonical victim. Um, and this is Mary Kelly. Um, this, this is the most gruesome of all of the murders. So again, I'll warn you when I get back to that part, but, um, I'll tell you a little bit about her life. There's not a whole lot known. Um, so she was born in 1863 in Limerick, Ireland. And she moved to Wales in her early childhood. Um, and her father, John Kelly, worked in an ironworks um, factory. Okay. In 1879, she married a man named Davies. And um, sadly, you know, just either two or three years later, depending on the source, her husband was killed in a pit explosion. And um, so Mary went to live with her cousin. And that's when she became a prostitute. So... Again, you know, these women, all of them had circumstances that like made them make choices that I know some people don't agree with. I don't really care if people agree with it, um, you know, but they were doing what they had to do to survive. And I don't think they should be judged for that. Yeah. Um, so it seems like uh, for a time in 1984, she moved to London and was working in like a high class uh, West End brothel. Um, but in 80, 1886, she moved to the East end of London. Um, and she met a man named Joseph Barnett. And okay. so they began living together. Okay. Now at some point, you know, Joseph, uh, ended up not working anymore. Um, and it didn't say why, but just, he stopped working. 
So she had to return to prostitution to try to keep a roof over her head. And Barnett eventually, you know, left her. And his reason that he gave for leaving her was because she was involved in sex work. But again, he wasn't working. She was the only one keeping a roof over their head. So you'd think the man would be grateful, but you know. No, men have tiny ass egos. Yeah. Be real. <laughs> yeah. So on the night of her murder, um, it was November 9th, 1888, uh, about 2 a.m., a man named George Hutchinson met her on Commercial Street and she asked him for sixpence. Um, apparently, he didn't really have money, so he declined. Um, and then she continued along Commercial Street and began talking with another man. Um, and the two of them back- backtracked along that street. And Hutchinson was kind of like following along. Um, it didn't really say why, like, were they all chatting or um, was he just like on the same path? I have no idea. But apparently he was kind of, you know, along. Um, and then it said that, um, that, you know, Mary Kelly led the man into Miller's court, which is where she lived. And Hutchinson said that he waited outside for about 45 minutes, but neither the man or Mary Kelly came out. So he ended up leaving. Um, And that was at 2 a.m. And then people say, like the neighbors say that around 4 a.m. They heard a faint cry of murder um, from the direction of her room. Okay. But nobody did anything, you know. Um, so that was around 4 a.m. And then oddly, between 8 and 10 a.m., several people claimed that they saw her like in the streets, just walking around or whatever. Um, but that wasn't possible because by this time she was already dead. So uh, now we get into um, who found her. So John McCarthy was the landlord of that um, 13 Miller's Court. And he sent Thomas Bowyer, who was like his assistant. He sent him to go collect her rent because it was overdue and she didn't, she didn't reply to the door. So he went around to the window. Um, and apparently there was like, um, I I think like a jacket or something was like acting as like a makeshift curtain. And so he moved the jacket out of the way so he could see into the apartment. And that's when he saw her body on the bed. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously he went to get, you know, the, the actual landlord. Um, and again, this is where we're going to get into what happened to her. And I know I already said this is the most gruesome. So, um, yeah, skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. Um, but she was described as, um, like her body was like mutilated beyond recognition Um, her entire abdominal cavity had been emptied out and the viscera, you know, so the, the organs that were inside her abdominal cavity were like deliberately placed beneath her head and like on her bedside table. Um, so basically she was like cleaned out and her organs were just put in places. Um, her breasts were cut off and her face had been like really hacked away so like she was pretty unrecognizable and her heart was removed Uh and you know the heart was not found it was absent from the crime scene so the other organs were you know under her head or on the bedside table but her heart was not found um yeah and the landlord you know when he was interviewed about it he said the sight that we saw I cannot drive from my mind it looked more like the work of a devil than of a man wow okay So 
you know, these are the canonical five. So these are the five that pretty much everybody believes these are all the same person, Jack the Ripper. Um, there, you know, there is the idea that there could be up to 11 victims because, you know, there were other murders, you know, around the time, you know, that were um, kind of similar area or whatever. But, you know, I would say that all the other murders that I looked up, because I, I did look through them just to see if I thought any of them should be included, but they really did seem to have very different MOs and, um, you know, like they didn't have the brutality or, you know, the signatures slash of the throat or those kind of things. So I didn't really think any of them were probably connected. So I didn't include them, but these were the canonical five that most people agree are Jack the Ripper. Um, and then I did want to just give a brief description of what, you know, people said. So, you know, again, different descriptions, but basically between 25 and 35 years old, between five foot five and five foot seven, okay. people describe him as stocky and fair skinned and that he had a mustache and he was often seen in a dark overcoat or hat. And again, this is what people think he was somebody that might be involved. Nobody other than maybe that Israel guy actually saw him in the act or anything, but this is, you know, just somebody that people happen to see around on the nights of the murders. Um, and then I will say that a man at Scotland Yard commented, um, when he, he was describing the appearance of what, you know, the killer would look like, he said um, he would appear perfectly sane, frighteningly normal, and yet capable of extraordinary cruelty. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing with serial killers. They could hide in plain sight, you know, that doesn't shock me at all. Um, well, and, you know, I don't know if there is any truth to the fact that he had medical training or, you know, was just an educated man about about anatomy or even if he's self-educated um you know he was probably somebody that could pass you know as a smart intelligent normal human being even though he clearly was twisted as fuck um yeah. you know but I <laughs> um but I just want to say again you know I just feel like these women are often you know just like a side note in the story and um so I just wanted to give a little bit of a voice to their story because a lot of them had a really sad story um, and they, you know, they were doing what they had to do. They shouldn't be judged for it. Um, and this motherfucker didn't have any right to judge them and kill them for it. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give a little bit of their story because I just feel like you don't really hear much about them. And I, I feel like that's a little bit disrespectful. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, these are women who turn to sex work for various reasons, but sex workers are still people who work and are doing the best they can and are doing what yeah. they can do to provide for themselves or their families in some cases. And like, how dare anyone judge, you know? I mean, in my opinion, I'm like, okay, sex work is the world's oldest profession. Why are we pretending yeah. like such a scandalous thing? You know, yeah. I just, I, well, I just feel like two consenting adults and I mean, as long as you're safe and, you know, I don't know, but I just, you know, it just kills me that they're often just described in a way that's like very dismissive of what their lived experience probably was. And, um, and to me, all of these cases seem like they didn't have a lot of choice. Women did not have a lot of choice back then. Not, you know, I mean, I know we have more choices now. We're still working on it though. Um, but you know, it, it was just a sad case. So um, anyways, I know that you're going to get into the, um, you know, I had to do the sad hard part and you get to do more of the like theories and suspects, which, 
Um, you know, that's a little bit more fun, I guess, if there was a fun part of this story, you know, to consider who done it. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you like to start with, my dear? So how I kind of did it was I started with just like the random theories of like who knows, and then I get into individual people who like okay. were um I'm gonna really say for myself and now this happened such a long time ago and none of these suspects in general really have a ton of evidence I'm not leaning one way or the other really strongly at all maybe with us talking we'll find more but um yeah I think you know you did a great job just breaking down the cases kind of with what I was able to gather I also focused on the canonical five there was no point in looking at the other ones like again I peaked, but I was like I I don't see any tie yeah the suspects with those other cases and that's why I didn't look yeah I agree they just didn't really seem to be connected to me I mean these five were clearly like I don't know how you could say that these were two different people I mean it was so they were so similar I think the only one I think would be that last one because she was found in her house and not in public but again I that doesn't really mean anything you know to me yeah yeah, I mean, that was a unique thing. Um, and that was also the most brutal. And so, you know, I don't know if that was like, you know, if he knew this was going to be his final m- murder, and he was like, I'm going to go out with a bang, and he wanted more privacy and more time with her. And so doing it in her house, or, that you know, maybe, personal to me. you know, maybe he was just escalating. So he wanted the privacy for that. And maybe something happened to him, and he got taken out, or he thought the cops were getting close or something. And that's why he stopped. Who knows? Um, but I do wonder about like, did he just want more privacy so he could have more time? Cause he clearly had plans for that woman. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He I don't like, that. it sounds almost like he knew her to me. Yeah. Like that yeah, sounds so cool. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, this case is such a downer, but <laughs> let's get into some suspects okay. and theories. Um, so one of the most common theories is that if Jack is not a doctor, Jack was a butcher, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, well, just the idea of like having some anatomical knowledge, that would make sense too. Yeah. That's a piece for sure. A big part of it too is like in old London, like it was really common for butchers to just like walk around to make deliveries covered in blood. Like they would come from the slaughterhouse with their huh. meat and they would just deliver it to people or whatever with a bloody apron or whatever. And so the idea he could kind of walk through London unnoticed was something that people were saying is like, a butcher could have done it. Did Um, anybody see anybody dressed like a butcher on the nights of the murders? I didn't hear any reports of it. I was going to say, because all the things that I heard was that he was like dressed nice and, you know. Yeah. And the reason why I think this one is, I think some of these are a bit more like, well, it makes sense because of this one case, but I think with Catherine Eddowes and um, was it Annie Chapman? They were the double event or am I missing? Yeah. Okay. Um, The, the two that were murdered the same night because, you know, he was able to escape so quickly and almost walk back to the scene of the crime and all of that. They believed that someone wearing bloody clothing who was a butcher would not have been noticed. So that was kind of their theory um okay yeah and it was uh Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride were the same night oh Elizabeth Stride I'm sorry Annie Chapman yeah. was earlier okay yeah um, 
I was close. I was close. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be one of the five. (laughs) But you know, but that I mean, it's an interesting theory. Um, You know, but I mean, on the flip side of that, me saying was anybody seen in a butcher's outfit that night? You know, at the same time, nobody saw a man in a suit bloody either. So you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it could have been a butcher kind of thing and dressed like that um, because nobody reported seeing a man in a bloody suit or any of that either. So. Nobody's yeah. apparently nobody's after the murders. He was very sneaky about getting away. And that's why I think if he was able to duck around the Whitechapel district without suspicion, especially after that event, he'd have blood all over himself. There's no way yeah. he did it. Yeah, there's no way he wouldn't have blood. Yeah. So a butcher makes sense to me, which actually goes into my second theory, okay. which is my favorite personally, selfishly, but it's Jane the Ripper that it oh. was not a jack it was a jane oh okay tell me more um at the time again super common for midwives and nurses to walk around london in bloodstained clothing and so the idea that a woman would be one fairly unassuming they were all looking for a man and like a midwife could have bloody clothing or could dress like a midwife and have the bloody clothing wouldn't be a thing And something interesting, too, about Jane the Ripper, which I kind of caught on when you were doing the description. Honestly, the top hat with the mustache, with the overcoat, with all that, that sounds like a disguise. And Jack was shorter in stature. I'm not saying that short kings don't exist. We know them. We love them. They're great. But 5'5 to 5'7, I mean, I'm 5'7. Like, I think most femmes I know are kind of in that category so well except for those of us that are adorably shorter than that <laughs> I know not three. All- <laughs> um, <laughs> nothing wrong with those of us that are short but yeah but you're right yeah that stature is usually a female you know and so again like it there's really no weight to the theory there wasn't a woman they thought it was it was just like one of the detectives actually said he was like it's kind of like my favorite theory but I don't have any suspects like he's like I just think it's interesting but I can't prove anything um yeah it is interesting I you know I just have a hard time picturing a woman doing that or having the strength to like I don't know but you know people do all kinds of things that I don't understand and I, I can't believe that anybody is capable of this so yeah yeah And that's how I feel. I'm like, I, you know, and again, the hard thing with a woman too, is I feel like statistically women tend to choose more natural appearing murder Mm -hmm. weapons or murder choices. So they'll choose poison or asphyxiation or something like that. They don't tend to choose guns and knives and blunt force trauma. That doesn't mean a woman isn't going to do it. I mean, it obviously has happened. I'm just saying, you know, um, statistically, that is a thing that has been said. So I just think it's interesting. I love, I love a alternative theory. So yeah. Um, the last sort of theory though, is that it was a foreigner, which I kind of like too. Um, huh. and it's because the letters have weird English. I don't know that language. Yeah. Is weird, well, I know. And that's why I was like, when I read this, I'm going to really try hard to like read it, but like, you know, your mind automatically wants to go say whatever would make sense to say but some of it's worded weirdly so I had to like read it slow and be like make sure I'm getting this right yeah and so that's kind of what this theory is is just 
either the bad English could be to throw investigators off to be like, who knows, like they can't figure out where I'm from or whatever, because I'm not using slang and I'm not whatevering. Um, well, and also, you know, if he was a very educated person wanting it to seem like he's less educated. Exactly. And so that yeah. was the theory too, was just in general, the language was to throw the detectives off either way. Yeah. Um, but the idea was kind of like for a foreigner, because Whitechapel is close to the docks. It was like, it could have been someone working on a ship who just happened to pass through London several times and then got shipped somewhere else, you know? Well, and then that's true too, because all of these murders happen in a very short time span. Yeah. And so that is- So it could have been somebody that was just there for those few weeks, you know, that month or whatever, you know? Yeah. And that, and so, yeah, again, it's just a theory. There's no real suspect. It was just an idea of something it could have been. Okay. Um, But we can now get into some of the suspects if we are ready. I am so ready, girl. I think I have seven or eight. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of these guys just kept popping up and I was like, okay, I'll take the ones that have some meat behind them. Um, Well, and that's why this is our keg episode and not a normal sized episode (laughs) because there is a lot of information on this one. And I know I made it longer by adding details that are not always included in this story, but those are important details. And I appreciate putting those details. So absolutely. But that's why it's a keg. (laughs) So, um, so the first I went after was Montague drawn, drawn, John, Montague, John drew it. My goodness. I don't know why (laughs) I can't do that today. You wanted Um, to think you wanted to put John and drew it together. (laughs) Um, So this one, I will say, um, the reason why he is suspected and is on this list is because Detective Inspector McNaughton did favor him as a suspect Mm -hmm. and the murders ended after his suicide. Oh. So those are the two main reasons. Why was he favored as a suspect? Well, let me get into it. Oh, okay, girl, let's get into it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the investigators really did believe that this was convincing enough, just that he, after his suicide, the murder stopped. Mm -hmm. However, I also think investigators were kind of rushing to close the case. And so if they were like, well, the guy who might have been Jack the Ripper just died in the Thames, like, who knows? You know, it's hard to tell. Um, But Druitt, he was an Oxford educated man and people believed him to be sexually insane I don't there was no description for that I don't know if that means maybe he had some sort of you know sex disorder high sex drive you know wasn't a type things they don't really explain it they just say uh, yeah I want because I wonder what that means only because like does that mean he was like somebody who committed assault or does that mean he was somebody who was seen as like deviant? Um, you know, because a lot of things that were seen as deviant back in the day would not be seen as deviant now. Um, yeah. So I do wonder what the definition of that would be. Yeah. But yeah, he was like a violent offender kind of person. Yeah, that would be something. And it didn't really say. And that's the hard part. Um, I just, I didn't know. And so um, outside of that, he had been seen in the Whitechapel district around the time of the murders. Um and 
He was not a doctor himself, but several people in his immediate family were. He okay. was also a school teacher though. So, I mean, he had access to biology books and stuff. I mean, it's not that hard. Um, and apparently within his family, it was a lot more hearsay, but they kind of believed he could have been the Ripper or they were like, I mean, yeah, I guess he was capable of it, but like oh, no really? one actually said like, yeah, he told me he was Jack. Um, but like capable of it because he was kind of a bad guy, like aggressive guy, or just because he was smart. I don't know. Like, again, it's so hard because it's like, they say he's sexually insane. So they're like painting this picture, but what is this picture that they're painting? Like, what? Like it could be really, really bad or it could be like totally normal. Yeah. You Cause know? I mean, like, again, sexually insane, like if he was like a violent offender, then yeah, I would say he's capable of this kind of aggression towards women. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It'd be interesting if we could know more about what they meant by that, but there's no way yeah. to know that. <laughs> there's no way to know, sadly. Um, yeah. And so really the only other thing known about him is that seven weeks after Mary Kelly's murder, his body was found drowned in the Thames. Mm -hmm. um, it was concluded as suicide and it had been in the water for several weeks. So they oh coincided with the murder. Um, coincided with the last murder? Yes. Yeah. Oh. And so... And they think it, they, they're pretty sure it was a suicide, not like just an accident or something? They said it appeared a suicide. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's water. Water washes every, like, I don't know, you know, but there were no like physical injuries that indicated anything else was that yeah. being drowned in those. I don't, you know, it's weird though, because I think of like, you know, somebody like Jack the Ripper that was like writing notes and clearly wanting attention. Like it kind of would be surprising to me that he would commit suicide and not leave a note. Yeah. And that's why I don't necessarily lean towards him as a suspect. Okay. Um, yeah, I would, well, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time picturing somebody like that committing suicide because, you know, you're such a psychopath, narcissist, like whatever, that I have a hard time believing you would like commit suicide. You know, it's not like you have any guilt or anything. Um, so yeah, I have a hard time thinking of a person like that committing suicide. But knowing that he was so attention seeking, you know, I would think that he would want a note if he was going to do that to like, be like, ha ha, I got away and you guys didn't catch me or, you know, whatever. I'm going out of my own terms or whatever. So that makes me wonder if it was like an accident, like if it was him, if he just like fell into the water and drowned or something. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But if the murders stopped after that, that is interesting. The timeline. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's again, it's just hard. Like, I, yeah. You know. huh. um, but our next one is Carl Feigenbaum um, or Anton Zahn. So he kind of uses a few different names. I'm going to call him Carl. Okay. <laughs> Carl seems like the easier one. <laughs> so um, he was a merchant sailor who worked on the docks near Whitechapel. So bam already kind of with our foreigner sailor theory um and his schedule actually did coincide with the five canonical victims okay and he how he had been known as a frequent visitor to the brothels in the Whitechapel district so okay. he at least had engaged in stuff with sex workers 
Well, yeah. and there were the witnesses that said, you know, dressed kind of like a sailor and it was only that one night or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so he, um, the, the main reason why he is, um, maybe connected to this is because he is actually suspected or not suspected he is convicted of murdering his landlady and neighbor julia hoffman about a year later in new york city oh and, um was it as violent as these or were there any similarities he used a knife okay. um i believe it was a stabbing not so much of a slashing sort of situation okay um and so yeah that's because he is a convicted murderer i think that's why a lot of people like this theory um mm -hmm. he was put to death in sing sing um and his lawyer did say that he spoke very articulate articular artic <laughs> oh my articulately <laughs> can you tell well, you're, you're very articulate as you said the word articulately <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i'm sorry everyone i'm really tired today i worked um 11 hours without a break pretty much so i know but look at us ending our night together i know we should probably go to bed but this is fun <laughs> no this is really fun i don't yeah. mind y'all are you're doing me. great i stumble stumble over my words way more than you do um but yeah, so he could speak very articulately and he was able to have conversations that I guess, according to his lawyer, indicated he had anatomical knowledge. Hmm. I don't know what that means, but I guess if you're a sailor, maybe you know some things. I don't know. Maybe you learn. Well, I mean, it kind of depends on what your job is, because like, you know, you think about our like military type sailors and, you know, there are always corpsmen and people that, you know, are medics, you know, so if he yeah. was like a medic on a ship or something, he definitely would. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um one reason why I think this is like he's obviously included is because before his execution, he thought maybe he'd earn a stay or at least or possibly an appeal if he confessed to the murders. Oh. And so he did end up confessing and his lawyer did publish a statement in the paper that was kind of like, yeah, like he could have been Jack the Ripper. I could see it. Um, hmm. But that's really all we have on like that like the confession was not actually taken down there's not like details of what he said but he thought that would make it go better for him <laughs> i think he thought that if he confessed to being jack the ripper he would get a stay of execution and be able to like confess and live a little bit longer i think yeah. is what his brain was thinking wow yeah, I was thinking, you know, if I was at that time and I was thinking about confessing as Jack the Ripper, I would be like, what are these people going to do to me? You yeah. know, because, yeah, I would be more worried about like, are they going to violently harm me? Um, you know, because I think they would take it harder on somebody who's Jack the Ripper. Right. You would think, well, and like, that's what Ted Bundy did. He confessed like the day before his execution because he thought that if he actually confessed people would want to interview him. Oh, so, okay. So Ted Bundy did do that. So I oh, okay. know this is a thing that murderers do. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I didn't um, think about that, but yeah, I mean, I, 
But man, if I knew that you were Jack the Ripper, yeah, I would want it to be a lot more painful of a death. And I know that's not a thing, but like that's what I would want because goddamn you hurting women, like you don't get to do that. Yeah. And I will say one of the, you know, detective inspectors from London said, I don't think it's Jack. Like the way he murdered Mrs. Hoffman was not the way Jack would have done it. The only similarity is that he used a knife. Okay. And um, that being said, <laughs> again, this is before DNA and like we could actually test any of this, but I guess the blood on the knife outside of Mrs. Hoffman's blood, there was other blood and they believe the knife had been on there for a year, which coincides with the Ripper killings. Again, just mm-hmm. kind of dumb. If he's a sailor, maybe he got into a bar fight. Maybe he gutted a fish. Maybe, like yeah. you know. I think there's a lot of reasons why there could be blood on a knife for a year. Um, But that's really all we got about him. Like, he is a convicted murderer. There are some things that I think could line up storyline-wise. But again, he did confess. And I don't know if he actually was. So it is interesting. But yeah, I mean, you know, if like what you said, if he was confessing because he thought that would give him a little bit more time on Earth, I mean... You know, I do think people some well, and sometimes people confess because they want more no, notoriety or whatever. So yeah, um, I never get people that confess to horrible things to me. Like, why would you want that? But people do. People do. People are crazy. Yeah. So our next one is Aaron Kosminski. Um, he's a Polish barber who settled in London in the 1880s, and he was a hairdresser during the time of the murders. Hmm. Um a witness had reported Is he the demon barber of Fleet Street? <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> no. Um, but you know, I guess one of the witness reports had said that the killer looked like a Jew or someone who they thought was the killer could have been of Jewish descent. Huh. However, I don't think that explains the anti-Semitic no yeah that's what i was gonna and again you know i don't know if that writing was actually jack the ripper but you know that's where the apron was found um but yeah that was definitely anti-semitic hateful shit so yeah i wouldn't think that jack the ripper was jewish but yeah so i don't know um and i guess he had a really well documented hatred toward women because he had gotten a venereal disease from a sex worker um they believe it's syphilis i don't know if they could prove it but they were basically whatever was going on he was like moved to an insane asylum in the 1890s and um for various things um well and syphilis does that right yeah it, it yeah. messes the brain yeah um, the reports i but, you know i'm sure the sex worker was also very angry at the man that gave it to her yeah exactly i mean i i listen yeah <laughs> like whatever um not getting into that but i think everyone could be angry at anyone for what happened and you know i don't think murdering people is a response for that but um a lot of his symptoms to me sounded like he could have had schizophrenia mm-hmm. um, and again lots of people with schizophrenia might behave in ways that are odd or not typical but again that doesn't mean that they are homicidal maniacs and yeah like, so it, like he was having like hallucinations and delusions or 
that's kind of what it sounded like it's the stuff is hard to tell like but people were like yeah you just see him like kind of talking to himself walking down the street or you'd see him like whatever but again that like to me I'm like okay lots of people have mental health issues so that doesn't mean you're going to be a homicidal maniac he might be a scapegoat but that doesn't mean anything yeah um and so I guess like the big reason he is considered a suspect is because his mitochondrial DNA was found on Catherine Eddowes's shawl. Um, hmm. Which I want to just say like mitochondrial DNA for folks who don't know that is passed down through maternal lineage. So just because necessarily it was like his mitochondrial, it could have been anyone in his immediate family pretty much that had the same maternal tree. Okay. His siblings or whatever. Again, doesn't mean that it wasn't him i'm just saying mitochondrial dna if he was hanging out in Whitechapel, maybe he visited a sex worker i you know i'm not well that's the other thing i was gonna say you know he could have visited her you know and but not killed her you know so his dna would be there but yeah um and the thing with the shawl evidence that i want to say too is it was a not mentioned on the original report Hmm. um in that it had like the blood and semen evidence wasn't necessarily from the crime scene that was found on the shawl so again even if it what like yes it wasn't in the original report maybe it still belonged to Catherine Eddowes there is blood and semen on it yes we can say okay cool but was it from the murder because you can't prove that like you (laughs) there's no evidence that it was from the murder so if she is a sex worker that doesn't really prove a lot you know it just proves that whoever was around her on the shawl you know could have passed evidence or like dna there so i i don't want to say that this is like a very convincing theory again i very sad that he like kind of lived out the rest of his days in an asylum and all of that but um it sounds like he really did have like severe mental health things um and it doesn't necessarily sound like he was murderous (laughs) that's just me um all right we're getting to the last couple i think so the next one is walter sickert um he was reportedly impotent. Um, I guess he had some surgeries as a child and that impacted his ability to perform sexually and that left him with a hatred of women. However, his first wife did divorce him due to infidelity and she said that he had fathered an illegitimate child. So if you're impotent, you can't have a baby. So I don't know. (laughs) Um, I think again, it's really, really hard to, um, to say what that was again, because it was so far back. Um, he, I guess also was a painter. So he created a series of painters that were inspired by the murder of a sex worker named Emily Dimock. And she was not one of the canonical five, but people, again, can be really fascinated with murder without 
murdering people. <laughs> like, yeah. Be interested and want to paint the macabre. And that doesn't mean that you're a murderer. So yeah. to me, I don't see that as much of evidence. Um, there's an author named Patricia Cornwell. She, I guess, really believed that some of the similarities in the paintings and the Ripper killings were too close for comfort. Like she was like, this is too similar. Um, you know, but I, I guess I want to go back to kind of what I started with, though, was that there was like public obsession about these murders. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that that means it like lets him off the hook, but I just think people were like really drawn in and kind of fascinated by it. So it wouldn't shock me if people drew things or painted things or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just think there was so much um, attention given that I could see that influencing an artist's work. Absolutely. And yeah. I will say this author like has gone full like national treasure, like ripping up paintings and crap to try to find evidence um, in yeah. that. And she has not found anything. So I'm not again, I I'm not saying that he wasn't. I'm just saying it is interesting. Um, but. In my opinion. I don't think he did it because there's also evidence that he was vacationing in the South of France during many of the murders. Well, good for him. The South of France is lovely. And, you know, he could have traveled back and forth. There's no travel document showing that. Um, again, like I said, Cromwell, the author is pretty convinced that he wrote him and like even the letter evidence is really shaky if you look at the letters he wrote while he was in France and the letters that Jack wrote like the handwriting is different um and so some people are like yeah maybe these are just some of the letters that are like pranks and then the letters that are legit legit are these ones but like if he did write a letter maybe he was just feeding into the obsession you know um I guess um, there also was a partial DNA match on one of the stamps on one of the letters that they thought could belong to Sickert. However, it only narrowed it down between like one and 10% of the population. Mm. And so that's not small enough to say that you know, it was Sickert. Like that's- a So a DNA match, I mean, so that was done modernly yeah I was gonna say pretty I mean yeah so I mean but that was like over 100 years after yeah but so, I mean DNA is DNA so it's not like it changes but um yeah that's interesting well but a partial match because I think if I'm remembering this evidence is that it was like they thought it was like pretty much like they found him and then I guess they had like mistyped the gene or something on oh. one of them and because of that it went from like it had to be him to like it was like again 10% of the population okay. so yes. it changed a lot yeah. um like I said I'm not saying he didn't do it I just I'm not very convinced if he was supposedly vacationing in France I'd like to believe he was doing that instead so <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see so our next one is dr francis tumblety which is such like a british children's <laughs> story name i feel like <laughs> um but 
he was one of the favorites of Inspector Little Child. Um, and I will say Little Child had little involvement in the case, but he was such a high-ranking officer that he had a lot of access to the files and the information and hmm. that. So um, apparently Tumble T in 1888 had been arrested for gross indecency with a group of males. Um, hmm. And didn't specify, I'm assuming some gay stuff happened. Well, that's what I was going to say, you know, because back then, like, that was seen as deviant or whatever. Um, so, yeah. What did they call it? Gross what? Gross indecency with a group of males. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a normal Saturday night in San Francisco. So, you know, I don't find it gross or indecent, but, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Um. But yeah, so the judge did remand him on bail and he actually left England and went to Bologna and just like vacationed there essentially after he was on bail, which I don't think he was supposed to do, but whatever. Um, and he actually was an American um, person. So he returned to the Americas or the US and was basically hounded by the press for his connection to the murders and he apparently made like a flippant remark which was like oh yeah like of course I'm Jack the Ripper like ho 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 but like yeah. he was like no yeah. like um but I don't know who knows um again well, if you were just a gay man you know um I feel like you know anything that people saw as deviant they would want to like vilify people you know um but I guess the other part of that that I want to say is like you know most gay men don't have like severe aggression towards women like that's not I don't think that's a typical thing well and the one thing I will say is that all of this is rumors but apparently um because he was a doctor he would collect uteri from bodies in the morgue um and apparently he had once denounced all fallen women at a dinner one time oh again not i like him a little bit less now (laughs) not great but this is hearsay there's no proof of this happening huh and okay the removing the uteri is weird but the like denouncing fallen women how many men talk shit about women all the time yeah yeah, I'm like I but like I I said that makes me like him less (laughs) I like him I loved him at the beginning when I thought he was like a fabulous gay man and yeah that that made me like oh live your best life and who cares if they think you're a deviant but um yeah if he was denouncing fallen women um I have an issue with that yeah so I guess people kind of on the outskirts of his life like who knew him but were more acquaintances were like yeah I guess he was capable of it but I don't Mm -hmm. know but his landlady, who apparently he was really close with, was like, he was a perfect gentleman. I don't think he would have done something like this. And again, you never know someone's character. Um, but it does mean something, I think. Um, and honestly, he has never been connected with being in Whitechapel. And he does not resemble the descriptions of the murderer. I think he was taller and had different physical stuff. So okay. again... If it was a costume, if it was something, could have changed things. But yeah, but you can't change his height, you know. No, not at all. Um, and it doesn't sound like the police really seriously suspected them either. Um, because 
they even were like, yeah, we wouldn't have released him on bail if we thought he was Jack the Ripper. Like he was literally in custody while the murders yeah. were happening. If we believed he was Jack oh. the Ripper, we would have kept him. Like, what if he was in custody while the murders were happening? Yeah, then he couldn't have done it really. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have the dates on that, so I couldn't tell you, but it sounds like he was like arrested and out within a reasonable time where like no murders happened but still like they were like we did not believe he was jack the ripper like we would not have released it um again you never know people are good at hiding their true colors i'm just saying that's what they said um so our next one is george chapman um who also uses the pseudonym severin kowalski um, I'm going to call him George or George Chapman or Chapman. So uh, Kowalski is hard to say. Um, but he worked um, in a barbershop on High Street in Whitechapel during the murders. Um, he moved to the U.S. in 19, or 1891 and then returned to London after the birth of his daughter. Um, he left his wife and married Annie Chapman. And then in that time, he was linked to a few other women. Okay. And his final wife was someone named Maud Marsh, who died mysteriously in Annie, 19- Annie Chapman. The yes. Oh, okay. But this is why they suspect it could be him, at least for her. Um, and it's that his first or his last wife, Maud Marsh, died mysteriously in 1902, and she was found to have been poisoned and then his other two wives had also had significant amounts of poison in their systems after Mm -hmm. examining their bodies so he was arrested and executed in 1903 Mm -hmm. um so aberline detective inspector aberline who was like the big guy on the jack the ripper case really did not see the connection until the trial when he started putting dates together apparently the murders did coincide with his arrival in england and ended when he left for the u.s and apparently there were similar murders that took place in the u.s when he arrived but they could not pin them on him um uh chapman did apparently have surgical training and again it doesn't necessarily mean anything if you have some anatomical knowledge. I mean, it was difficult to do what the Ripper did, but um, if you have anatomical knowledge, I think you could figure it out, you know? Um, you said his name is George Chapman? George Chapman. Yeah, my notes, I had him as John Chapman. So, yeah. I, but he has another name because he, I think he was like Polish and then came to the, came to the England and changed his name. Huh, okay. Maybe I just yeah, wrote I was like, I, I haven't. Yeah, maybe I wrote it down wrong. <laughs> or maybe I had it wrong. You know, yeah, but that's interesting. Um, yeah, I had it. I had it as John, but um, yeah, that's interesting though. If they they were married and she ended up being a victim, and he was tied to like poisoning murders of other wives. I mean, that's pretty scary. Yeah. So here's the deal, though. Aberline was fishing he was fishing he was grasping at straws um a more recent investigation of everything shows that he was not actually in Whitechapel. like 
He had been in London, but they could not put him in Whitechapel until two years after the first murder. Um, and then apparently there never was a similar series of murders. So Aberline was just like making something up or read something somewhere that was wrong. Um, Cause you would think you'd hear about that. Like Jack the Ripper on American soil, you know, um, you know, and I'm just gonna, I'm sorry. Cause I'm thinking about what I said and, you know, we're contradicting each other here because in my notes, it was John Chapman, but, um, but it was also that, you know, they, um, like they separated and, uh, you know, like two years after they separated, he ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver. No, the, this must um, be a different dude then. Yeah, that's what I'm, I was like, or, you know, just, you know, maybe, you know, because I mean, you know, sources or whatever. So, you know, maybe one of us just had it slightly off. But yeah, I had I had John Chapman as the husband, but that he died a couple of years after their separation um, of cirrhosis of the liver. So, um, you know, yeah. which is why yeah, he turned and executed. Of huh? And that's what I was going to say, because he was fully convicted and executed of murdering his wives so okay yeah that's weird I mean you know but again we're looking at different sources and whatever yeah so and this is um, I'm not sure which one of us have it right or which one of us have it wrong but yeah that's definitely in conflict of what I said yeah I don't know <laughs> I, tried. Yeah, I don't know either <laughs> but just you know this is where I want to remind people <laughs> we are a mother-daughter duo <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a team of researchers. So, um, you know, I'm totally willing to point out if we have something off or, you know, our sources are saying something different, you know, um, but I'm glad we caught that because, yeah, that is a contradiction. Um, and again, I don't know which one of us has it right or wrong or, you know, if both of us are a little bit right in some ways. But, yeah, that's it's different than what I had. Yeah. And maybe like there was a John Chapman and there was a George Chapman and what like maybe there was like someone linked Annie to one of them and that was the wrong one and maybe that's where it all got confusing um well and I know I had another um I don't think it was her you know but one of the women um you know they were like well she was arrested but we're not for sure that it was her it could have been somebody else with a similar name um so you know records back then weren't I don't know always probably quite accurate or whatever or um so I mean there could just be our different sources had different information but yeah that's interesting yeah it, it was interesting for sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But we yep. can move on to the next one. <laughs> okay. So we have Michael Ostrog, who is a Russian immigrant and a doctor. Um, he was a convict. They didn't really say what for, but he was put in an asylum hmm. for homicidal tendencies. Oh. And he apparently was a petty thief and car- con artist. So... I guess throughout a lot of his adult life, like he was arrested for various things. It didn't say what he had done, but it, Hmm. yeah, some sort of petty thief and con artist. Um, But a homicidal tendencies, I wonder if that was just, he was saying homicidal things that they needed to put him away for safety or if he had acted on any of that. Well, and that's what it said because it's like the next bullet literally says, but he wasn't known to be like actually violent. Like, so maybe he had said some things, but I don't, know if he actually had acted on anything well and I mean that's a thing like if you say you're gonna harm somebody you're you're having thoughts of harming somebody they will put you in lockup for at least 48 hours or whatever to make sure people are safe and you know do an evaluation but yeah so maybe he did just say something 
yeah um yeah so this is like just mostly because this timeline is weird but in 1887 he stole a, a metal tankard and so he was incarcerated and then they found that he was showing signs of quote-unquote insanity again i don't know what that means but they put him in an asylum um and then he was released in march of 1888 um mm. at that point he had failed to report for parole so they just kind of said he disappeared without a trace okay um, so that was in time for these murders then yeah and so I think that's really the main reason why he was listed as a potential suspect when the murders began. Um, however, he was apprehended in 1891 and sent to an asylum. Um, and he was released in 1893, but had a, reportedly returned to thievery. In terms of record, he completely disappeared in 1904. We have no idea what happened to this man. <laughs> but... I guess he's another one where he, I guess, had been arrested in France uh, during the time of the murders. And so he had at least spent some of the murders in prison in France. And there is record of that. Um, but he was one of his known aliases. So, yeah, I don't think he's that convincing. I think he was kind of a, he got out of the asylum and like AWOLed right at the time when the murders were about to happen and they were just like it could be that guy but yeah. um that's really all I had on him so okay we have three more we're almost done <laughs> okay <laughs> um the next one is Thomas Cutbush um in his story is really short so um he basically in the 1890s was named a suspect um in the sun and mcnaughton who was one of the investigators completely refutes the articles he, his facts you know he's like the facts were off these things aren't real blah 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 like all of that so i don't really know um but the reason the only reason why is because he apparently was another human who had gotten VD or syphilis and went quote-unquote insane though it could have been hereditary insanity and so they believed that he could have been Jack just because he was out here being insane mm -hmm. um whether that's mental illness or illness mental illness because of you know um some sort of STI we don't really know because that was so long ago but um that's really all they had like that's pretty much it the detective wasn't that convinced and I was gonna say that doesn't sound very convincing to me but yeah that that's how I feel I was like I you know we're grasping at straws there friends this is Jack the Ripper <laughs> so another one that you might recognize is Charles Cross or Charles Leechmer, and <laughs> that's his alias or other name he used but um I guess as mom mentioned before he was the person who discovered Mary Nichols or the first victim um and his story was that he was on the way to work and he discovered her and that story has just been accepted as truth no one has ever questioned it um mm -hmm. but 
I think like just online internet sleuths kind of were like trying to put the narrative together and in 2012 we're like I apologize um we're kind of like it could have been him um because he was absolutely in the area and walking toward the murder as it quote-unquote happened um and what people are saying is that um Robert Paul who was the second person on the scene actually interrupted Cross and that he pretended to be shocked and then was like, it's too late to flee and I don't want to kill this guy. So I'm just going to pretend I found her too. Um, but did, I mean, wouldn't he be covered in blood though? Yeah, that's the main thing. And so here's the deal, right? So he, oh, let me see. Okay, so yeah, so his route home from work, everything was like along the line of all the murders. He basically passed the murder sites as he went to work every day. Um, all of them, not just the first one. And he apparently said that Elizabeth Stride was off the normal route, but also people said that his mother lived near Elizabeth Stride's murder scene. So if he was like visiting his mom, he could have murdered Elizabeth Stride. They couldn't really nail down what his job was because there's not a lot of record but people believed he could have been a meat deliverer therefore explaining oh okay clothing. um well if that's true then maybe that makes sense i was gonna say yeah because if the um robert paul just like walked up on him yeah he'd have to be covered in blood there's no way that he could do what he just did to her and not be covered in blood well and um too because the second guy who came up uh was it robert paul yeah yeah he apparently said that cross was standing near her body and cross reported that he was standing away from the body and saw her from afar so oh. that's already a conflicting testimony yeah. uh, so oh and this is another thing that's weird too so he made a testimony that there was another policeman at the scene because the way he had kind of testified was like yeah, I sent the other guy to go get a cop because I found her body and he went to go find a cop. But at some point, Cross said something like, no, there was a policeman there. And then, like, whatever. And so, again, just, like, the testimony changed. Doesn't mean he did it, but there are things that could suggest maybe at least he was a little suspicious. Um, yeah, I would want to know what he was wearing. Like, if it was true that he was wearing, like, a butcher's outfit, okay, then he's totally our man. But if he wasn't, there's no way he did it without being covered in blood yeah so this is the last one i think he's probably one of the more famous of the ones and it's also partially because he matches the description of jack pretty well okay um so his name is james maybrick do you know that name yeah i was gonna say i feel like most people <laughs> in this case know the same um so those of you who don't know, he was a cotton merchant from Liverpool. Um, he died in 1889 and he became a suspect after his journal was supposedly recovered. Um, apparently his wife, Florence, poisoned him with arsenic and that is how he died. Um, so in the diary, what he kind of says is that he had seen his wife and her lover in the Whitechapel district 
and his rage fueled him to murder five sex workers um which if your wife is cheating on you do something better but don't murder innocent people who have nothing to do with um well and i was gonna say usually when we think of a rage killing it's like i did this in the heat of the moment it's not i did this over several days you know Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in such gruesome, gory ways and removing body parts and taking them with you, that doesn't feel like a rage killing. Yeah, exactly. Because it like one murder makes sense. Multiple murders over days does not make sense. But I, I mean, I just think of a rage as like you would stab somebody 20 times. I don't think of rage as like, I'm going to remove body parts. You know, that to me, it takes more strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um. And so his diary is really detailed. It gives like a long description of all of the murders. It is pretty convincing um, to some people. And a lot of people agree that they should do like proper forensic analysis to confirm that his handwriting is that in the journal. Um, I don't know if there are letters or anything they could compare it against. Again, this was such a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but it's so interesting because the journal itself has kind of produced controversy um, because his friend who originally found the journal um, said that he forged it and then later withdrew his claim that he forged it. So that's already sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that his wife claimed that the journal had been in their possession since the Second World War. So maybe they got a box of his stuff from a friend and kept it in their attic. And then at some point found it, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, like, not all the details were things that only the killer could know. So um, that's something to know. And the journal does recount inconsistencies that the press and others could have wrong. Oh. So like a big one is with the Mary Kelly case he talks about how her body parts were spread all across the room okay um and the crime scene report points to something different um for example it said like her breasts were on the end table in the bed and her breasts were under her body they weren't not you know there yeah so there's discrepancies like that where like if you were the murderer you would think you would have things accurate and not things that you heard in the newspaper yeah Um, I will say there is a kind of interesting quote that he ends the journal with which I just want to read because I like it um (laughs) but he said I give my name that all know of me so history do tell what love can do a gentleman born yours truly Jack the Ripper oh and I'm like, sir, <laughs> like, that's very. Yours truly a gentleman born. It says what, um, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So again, weird language. I'm not saying that it's the yeah. same that was in the original letters or anything just interesting um because if supposedly jack the ripper wrote this diary and then supposedly the same person wrote the letters 
you could say that whoever wrote the diary wrote the letters, but we can't prove that this guy wrote the diary. So that's like his friend was like, I found his diary. So, huh? Uh, yeah. There are some, I guess. So is that the last one? He's the last one. And there's like one little last thing, um, okay. which is that in 1993, a man purchased a gold watch um from like a pawn shop or something that um had the initials of all five of the victims and it said under it it said j maybrick and then i am jack so huh apparently the scratches did date back to 1888 and 1889 um but nothing can really be definitively proven anywhere with him as a suspect because where was the watch stolen um i didn't write it down but i think oh. it was at a pawn shop um but like a pawn shop in england okay and it's interesting if the watch itself and the scratches and like the engraving um dates back to the time of the murders but again if all of england was obsessed with this there's probably some sick fucker who just wanted that you know, could have, could have wanted that, like engraved in his pocket watch. Well, and you know, it's funny because I was thinking about it the other way, like, you know, whoever, um, you know, did the engraving would probably have noticed the initials and been like, and noticed like, you know, the name and everything. And, um, yeah, you would think that if somebody was asked to engrave that they would report it, (laughs) you know, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I mean, I guess of all of the suspects, he's probably my favorite. Um, yeah I don't know what do you think he's the one with the most like somewhat evidence but none of them really have evidence yeah and it's because this case is so old like there you can't do the DNA and you can't really do a lot of it I mean even the timelines are fuzzy with all of them you know it's just well I mean it sounds like some of the DNA they did do but um but yeah I mean it's just it's hard like because if none of these suspects are him then you know the dna doesn't help so yeah well and even the dna they did it was like on a piece of evidence they couldn't definitively say belonged to the victim so even if they did the dna it's like they couldn't prove that it actually belonged to it was catherine eddowes i think yeah but 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 if they did think it belonged to her i'm just gonna say again you know but if she was involved in sex work there would have been probably lots of dna you know if she had different clients and yeah um, yeah, well, so that's why, like, if this person's DNA matched, like, it's like you can't say anything because it wasn't fa- it wasn't in the report with the body, like that it was collected later. Hmm. So it, it's all weird. It's all yeah. weird. Um, yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't think I have like a definitive. I think we solved it. Um, well, honey, I thought that was your job was to solve it tonight. Like I thought we were gonna like <laughs> Mom. No, that wasn't your plan. <laughs> I did not have the the bandwidth to go into the minutiae of all the theories. Um <laughs> if if y'all wanna subscribe to Patreon and pay me money to do that, I will do it. But uh I just don't <laughs> know if I have the might need a time machine to go back collect evidence and then you know do a full investigation so (laughs) yeah way back you gotta get a way back machine and go ask some questions and 
gather some samples. Yeah, I expect you to do that for next time. <laughs> well, I will um, consult Mr. Peabody and Sherman and let you know. Perfect. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> oh, all right, friends. Well, thank you for sticking around for our keg. I'm sure you're tired of our weird pronunciations of this <laughs> and uh, our tired energy. Um, <laughs> I think we did pretty good considering how tired we both are. <laughs> I think we did great. Honestly, I'm really impressed with the amount of research we both did for this because this case is just so it's a beast and we knew it was going to be and we really wanted to cover it. Um, but it's just yeah, it was we couldn't have one of us do it on our own. It would have been too difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I think we did pretty good. I think, you know, like I said, I don't think any this is a case I don't anticipate being solved ever um it's just too hard and it's funny to see like pop culture try to solve it in different ways but who knows um yeah I don't know it's all it's all wild it's all interesting um yeah but yeah if you guys um keep listening we have a couple more episodes left of spooky season so you know, keep checking us out and listening. We're doing a kind of twist on our normal keg or not keg, a uh, flight situation um, so that we can do a special Halloween episode just for you all. So stay <laughs> tuned for that. Absolutely. Cause we love Halloween. And um, yeah. And then we're going to be just keeping on our Patreons doing some bonus content for you all. So feel free to subscribe like us or rate us five stars, follow us on whatever, you know, um, podcasting platform you're accessing us from. Um, and then, yeah, just keep sending us spooky stories. We really do want to do this fun little like listener flight for you all. So keep sending them in. And, um, I can't think of anything else. Mama, you got anything? Um, I got that it's time for bed, so, <laughs> but I appreciate you, sweet little Ray Ray, and, uh, yeah, we appreciate you all listening. Yes, we appreciate you all. You're wonderful. Thanks for, uh, being troopers with us, and we And are... it really is fun to see, um, you know, the analytics and people from different parts of the world. I really am enjoying that, so prost to our new friend from Germany. I hope you enjoyed. Yes, prost to our friend from Germany, our friend from Belgium. We got some friends in Argentina and Finland, and it's really cool to see where people are tuning in from. So yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll get some rest, my darling, and I will chat with you soon. Sounds good. Bye, friends. Bye, friends. <laughs>